0: Welcome to Access and Opportunity. In this episode, we will explore serial entrepreneurship with Rose Wang. Rose is the principal of Rose Wang Strategies, chairman and founder of Binary Group, and one of Fortune's most powerful women entrepreneurs in 2013. Today, we'll talk to Rose about her journey in becoming a thought leader in Washington DC's IT world and leading the charge in disrupting the status quo in the small business community. Rose is a real force of nature, and I know this personally, having served with her on the National Women's Business Council. Let's get started. Rose, one of the reasons that I'm so excited to talk to you is that you are a serial entrepreneur. You have successfully started, and exited, restarted, maybe failed, went on to the next thing, uh, and I'd love to have our our listeners hear the progression. So. I have a a very technical background,
1: computer science and applied math. And after grad school, I worked for a big telecom company in R&D space. And I was nerd. I got into a very nerdy, esoteric software space that was uh, building software tools for software developers. So at the time, there were not many people that were into that yeah. kind of uh, building software. And as a result, I got recruited out of Texas to move to Silicon Valley to join a company called Lighthouse Design. Yes. Because they wanted to build a software tool for software designers, where we would uh, draw pictures of, of the design, and then software code is automatically generated. Oh, wow. Wow. At the time, it was very cutting edge. Yes. And this was um, early to mid-90s, mm-hmm. and I was the main uh, designer of this product. And in two and a half years, we um, built, not only built the product, beta did, and had um, two customers, two paying customers, and then we were acquired. Yeah.
0: Wow. In two 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 and a half years. Yeah, two paying customers. Two and a half years. Two
1: and a half years. And so I got, I was 27 at the time. Wow. I got 15 minutes of fame and a little (laughs) bit of money. (laughs) And... I said, if these nerds that I worked for could do this, maybe I could do it, too. Okay.
0: So <laughs> so that's where the entrepreneurial idea came from. Yeah. Okay.
1: Yeah. So I co-founded with my uh, now former husband 20 years ago, Binary Group. I had no vision. I had no mission. Only that I wanted to be my own ink mm-hmm. so I could be my own technical independent consultant. Okay. Because I had skills that could sell. Yes. And people were recruiting me. It mm-hmm. was it was easy to find customers because I had more customers than I had me to do. Mm-hmm. I'd turn away business because wow. there was only one of me. Mm-hmm. So that's how binary was born. Okay, and I did independent consulting around the country. I would fly Monday through Friday. You know, Monday fly to a project uh, site and come home on Fridays, mm-hmm. and doing. Big project work for Sprint, AT&T, Fannie Mae, cable and wireless, Fortune 100, Fortune 500
0: companies. So right out of the box, you were selling a large enterprise. Let Let me interrupt again and ask the question, how did you know how to price yourself? Because the other challenge that I find among entrepreneurs is they're not really sure what they should be charging and in many cases they charge below and as I say to them, do your homework beforehand because once you put yourself in a box below market it's hard to get there. So can you talk a little bit about your price discovery process and how you sort of stood your ground? That is so uh, important. So I was lucky
1: that because I had that 15 minute fame um, recruiters were calling me and they were making offers uh-huh. so i had i got a sense i did my market research without me doing it. They mm-hmm. were coming to me. What what I did was talking to uh, some of my friends who were already trailblazing in this space. They were nerdy type people who could be consultants. And one of the tips they gave me was set your price high because to go up from there is almost impossible as an independent. Ah, okay. Because you may have to take discounts. Yes. Mm-hmm. That was a, the discounting idea was uh, something that my friend, one of my mentors, yes. also gave me. Yes. And when I learned that, I said, oh, I cannot say just because I'm 27, only have five years of professional experience, I'm only worth X dollars. Mm-hmm. I set my set very high. So I did very well as okay. an independent. Okay. My client was CTO of Sprint. We okay. were running a $2 billion project together. Wow. And he brought in, uh, he, he signed an $800 million contract with IBM Global Services
0: Wow! to do the,
1: the bulk of the implementation. And I was very depressed because I thought we were going to build it by bringing excellent people and doing it, you know, one at a time. And he said, Rose, I only have one corporate career in Sprint. Mm-hmm. I can never go wrong by hiring IBM. You are my insurance policy. hmm mm-hmm. That's when I had another seed sold in me. Impact has to be big enough to to make impact. Mm-hmm. I cannot be an individual. I, I made a difference. With the project and with my client, but not big enough. Mm-hmm. I was his insurance policy.
0: Yes. he You were the one that he knew could get it done, even if the behemoth failed, screwed it up, took too long. He knew you could get it done. But he could not say Rosewang Inc. or Binary Group Inc. was the firm that I chose and Correct. it's a one-woman show. Yeah. So it didn't matter about what you could offer. It was one-woman show.
1: That's when I realized I needed capacity. Okay, If I was going to go down consulting, build a consulting Company, I need to have bulk. Mm-hmm. I need to have muscles. I need to be able to make a bigger impact.
0: So, and that's when you started building impact, which made you uh, able to take on more business. I took a left turn at Albuquerque at that point. Okay. <laughs> um, two of my friends, techie
1: friends, uh, invited me to join their company to build a, a software product company. Okay. And uh, this was early days of Java, and so our tool um, would have played. And ultimately, did play some role in that software development world. And um, I learned a big lesson. I was there for a little over a year, left my investment, left my money, obviously, it all went up in smokes eventually um, for one reason, one reason only. We three techies didn't know how to run business. One of the institutional VCs insisted that we hire. A professional CEO mm-hmm. because we were a startup. Every month we were going out of business the next month. Yes. Then there wasn't enough money. And so he would come to the founders or, you know, early employees and say, can you give up your salary next month? And we were already invested. And, you know, many of us chose to do that. Then I would go on a sales call with him and we end up going to New York City, Javits Center or something, doing a big show. After that, we would have a lavish dinner, Mm -hmm. expensive wines. That just did not sit well with me.
0: Mm -hmm. Well, but, but, you know, it's an important playbook point, Rose, that you do bring up, though. Despite the fact that he was the wrong guy, the founders aren't— always the people to take it to the next level. And that uh, it's an important thing, I think, for entrepreneurs to understand because it's your baby, you started it, and the idea of separation generally doesn't sit right. But I do think it's an aha moment and, again, a playbook moment for you to ask yourself, are you the right person? Do you know how to build and run a company? Or are you really good at creating this product? And if you're really good at creating this product, and frankly, you get your joy from creating this product, then you should stay CTO or you should stay, you know, chief something else, but not CEO. Right. Uh, And you should also educate yourself about what a CEO should be doing so that you can understand, you know, whether or not that person is doing the right thing,
1: if you will. Absolutely.
0: It it was another seed that was sold then
1: for uh, for me to learn to become a CEO, yes, later on, yes. Uh, so I left that company before it tanked. Mm-hmm. I left my investment to form yet another company called Ibiz Women, mm-hmm. and this time I went with two women partners. Okay, I met these two women at a women's empowerment conference. And I had, at the time, this is late 1990s, and, you know, internet was booming. Yes. And uh, everybody was interested in what tech could do for their community. And I remember making an impassioned speech at a gathering about how technology could really enable and empower all of us. And uh, two women turned to me and said, we want to talk to you. I was the only funder. The other two did not put any money in, and we set out. Uh, We wrote a business plan. One was a finance person. uh, Another one was a marketer. And we built a minimum viable product, MVP. Mm -hmm. Um, I was the main person behind it. And then what happened was uh, going into 2000, you would remember this. Uh, we were pitching our MVP to a VC uh, in April of 2000. Uh, I remember I was giving the demo and, and the, uh, the VC at the head table getting more and more nervous. And, and he um, said, we need to stop this meeting. The market just dropped 2,000 points.
0: Oh, I remember this very well. Mm-hmm. It
1: was on a Friday. And uh, he said, we'll regroup next week. Of course, we never regrouped. And we struggled for a few more months. And ultimately, I decided to pull the plug because I had the majority shares. Um, I learned several lessons from this. Mm -hmm. Uh, One was never uh, partner with people or bring on partners who say they only have sweat equity.
0: But that's another great playbook point in terms of how you think about who you ought to go into business with. And I often say that people don't value what they don't pay for. Yes. And so having some type of skin in the game is one way that you can make sure that people or you can try to make sure that people are aligned. Yes. Because obviously they could always walk away, but usually having something of value, which frankly is another important point for entrepreneurs, that's one of the telltale sounds for V. But oftentimes VCs want to see that you have everything that you know. If you don't make this successful, your house is going to be in peril, or your car is going to be in peril, or something else is going to be in peril because it matters just that much. So they want to see that kind of investment.
1: I wholeheartedly agree with that uh,
0: philosophy. Yeah. Yeah. Let's talk a little bit about you know the raising money. You said that you you all had raised a little bit of money in both of those examples. Uh, What was the process like of going? out to try to raise outside, outside
1: capital? In both cases, we started with angels, mm-hmm. uh, friends and family. Friends and family. family and okay. angels. Mm-hmm. And uh, in both cases, we were able to raise um, quite a bit of angel funds. Wow. We just lived and breathed what we were building. Okay. I look back now with, you know, rearview mirror,
0: it's embarrassing. <laughs> <laughs> My pitch was embarrassing.
1: My really? business plan was really bad.
0: Really? But, well, wait a minute, though. Let's back up. But you were successful in raising the money. So I was just about to ask you before you said that, what was your sale to friends and family? Because, as you know, part of the challenge Mm -hmm. with women entrepreneurs and multicultural entrepreneurs is they don't often have the friends and family that are able to give them the capital. And even if they are able, you know, they have to make a compelling sale. What advice would you give to people who have tried the angel funding route and have not had success i
1: remember one instance it was a friend a nerd friend who wrote me a pretty large size check he never really asked a lot of questions and then he asked to see the demo and and then he saw the demo he said mm, not bad and then he wrote a check okay and then i asked him later i said why did you write this i returned the money actually um after we shut it down, mm-hmm. I returned his money because I felt like I was uh, it was my integrity and my reputation on the line.
0: Very good. And, Very good. Because that uh, preserves you when you go back out the next time.
1: And he said it was your passion. And he understood enough of what I was doing in terms of technology. He said, I thought you had something really cutting edge.
0: But many entrepreneurs are afraid of debt, as you know from our work in NWBC. Yes. So <laughs> what would you, what would you say to them? Why shouldn't they be afraid debt of the is Debt is cheaper. Yeah.
1: <laughs> you know that as Absolutely. a banker. As
0: a banker, I know that. But i I am, you know, I really want the entrepreneurs to understand why they should not be afraid and why they should go there. The cost is no question. Yeah. But people of various backgrounds. If they've had debt anywhere in their lives before and it has turned out to be a problem for their families, it is a non-starter. But in fact, it's one of the best ways that you can capitalize your business, especially if you happen to have decent credit or even no credit and you're establishing credit.
1: Yeah, Yeah. and especially if you're going into um, um, the type of business that I ultimately went into, which was uh, government public sector procurement. Mm Uncle Sam has great credit rating. Mm -hmm. They will eventually pay you.
0: Okay. So now let's talk about the federal procurement piece, because that, as you know, is often obscure terrain for most entrepreneurs. They don't know where to start. The process seems like it's overwhelming. So talk a little bit about what, first of all, how you got to be a government contractor and what advice you would have for entrepreneurs today. I found myself in the summer of 2000 wanting to build a consulting
1: Company, so we were humming along very well going into 2001 until 9/11 happened. Yes, that day I had to track down my family members. I had uh, two cousins Wall Street, uh, one cousin in uh, DC who was who witnessed the Pentagon. Wow! And so I tracked everybody down in the evening. The news was going, and I sat on the couch and I said, "I'm going to take this company to national defense, national security, intelligence." I have all the failure of intelligence community, the systems not talking to each other. I know how to get them hooked up. And there was a personal uh, driver as well. I'm an immigrant from China, and um, I was a student in Tiananmen Square in 1989 for democracy. And 9-11 viscerally reminded me of what I went through mm-hmm. in 89. So I felt like that was something I had to do. And so I proceeded to learn how to do government contracting. And I would do the registering in these systems and nothing would come, right? And then they would say, oh, have you checked on Federal Biz Ops, which is supposed to be this um, a one-stop shop for all opportunities? I say, yes, I've done that. None of that has come. Um, But I benefited from being a very action oriented person. Um, I got uh, I've had several mentors by that time already. One of them had done government contracting. Mm -hmm. So I called her up and say, how do I do this? This being get some revenue going. And um, I had. Yeah, I had no idea. I didn't know any of the uh, players in the ecosystem. So she was very helpful in making some introductions. But more importantly, she said one thing to me. Become a subcontractor first. Mm-hmm. That's learn more on somebody like, else's yeah.
0: dime. Yes. yes, learn
1: on somebody else's dime. They need people like you who are highly technical, who have commercial best practices, who can help solve complex problems in the government. So sure enough, our first contract was a subcontract with a $2 billion defense contractor, helping them build Air Force-wide e-commerce system. But there was something else still in the way. I didn't have a security clearance. For, for the company to be able to do prime work with DOD the company has to have security clearance, which means the key principles have to have security clearance. OK. I applied. I was turned down three
0: times. Wow. Do they tell you why you're turned down? No. No. Just denied. Just denied. That's yeah.
1: <laughs> so at that point, I faced a, a branching, um, a branch in the road. Do I just go away and give up my dream of helping Military and intelligence community, or do I sue? Mm-hmm. And against all my friends' advice, I hired one of the biggest law firms in D.C. and sued DOD.
0: And I won. Wow, wow! And then, and then you began to do business with them directly. Yes. yeah. Okay, so this is a playbook point that I need to be clear. You were able to do that because you were turned down three times for no apparent reason, number one, but number two, you had resources where you could hire a law firm to help you fight it, which sent a message that she's really serious, she wants to do business with us, this is, you know, this is not going to happen. And three, it was an environment where you won. Yeah. And they want to see how serious you are by yeah. filling out all this paperwork, going through those interviews, yeah. at, you know, go, showing up at the open house because my understanding is that they have these these fairs, if you will, so that... Procurement fairs. These procurement fairs, so the government agencies that are using outside services get a chance to meet prospective uh, uh, suppliers. So you should go to that, is the other part of the playbook. Uh, And then you should apply and expect that it won't be the yes the first time. So set yourself up for at least three trials.
1: Yeah. Leave no stone unturned. Yes. That's what my mantra was. Mm -hmm. And I would Literally start from morning early in the morning. I get up early, I have breakfast meetings, I line up my lunch meetings and oftentimes drinks after work mm-hmm. and dinner meetings, and then go to these other networking things. Mm-hmm. I try to meet as many
0: people as I could.
1: And you were meeting with who mostly business owners and okay. um, big prime uh, people, okay? People who could choose the you to e- be part yeah, of their team if they yeah, got the big contract. It's the ecosystem, Very good. Very right? Good. So, because I made a very clear plan was to do subbing work first, subcontracting work first. I needed to to get to know the ecosystem. Mm-hmm.
0: How did you find out who they were?
1: Um, they're trade magazines, they're or ah. professional organizations, and um, and they're thriving. They're, and you can go to those organizations mm-hmm. and you pay a nominal fee mm-hmm. and go to these meetings. Okay. Yeah. And okay. Then, then, then you read them in newspapers and, and it's like, ah, oh, they're looking at this deal, maybe I should get on their team Mm -hmm. and help them. Mm -hmm. And I was always, I never asked for work that I don't think it
0: was just entitlement. Mm -hmm. I always said, let me help you Bring this deal in-house. Okay, let's turn to Rose, the investor. So what would you say to entrepreneurs are your top three things that you look for uh, in an investment? And if it has those things, then you're highly likely to invest. And then if you would also answer the top two things that you see that are clear, out of the box, no, 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 I know I'm never going to do this. So when I look at deals, uh,
1: certainly the idea comes mm-hmm. first. I look at the quality of idea mm-hmm. and the population where the market it serves and the scalability of the idea. Mm-hmm. Another big category I take a look at is a founder herself or ha- founder himself. Um, the stick to it the resilience of, of that person, um, what sort of failures they've had. How do they deal with negative situations. And the third one is the team mm-hmm. she has built mm-hmm. or he has built. Um, and that is, those are the three things I look at. Okay. And they, I I say no to more deals than I say yes. Oh,
0: sure. I would yeah. imagine. Yeah. I would imagine. You know, what? what's the advice that you would give to entrepreneurs uh, that things that they absolutely should not do when they're going in to talk to an investor?
1: I don't invest in deals when they don't put sweat, Blood and tears mm-hmm. into it. Mm-hmm. Uh, when they're not breathing it, um, buying a fancy new car and asking me for one hundred fifty thousand, then I question. Mm-hmm. Or they are driving a fancy new car, right? I put I put it in the question. Um, so I, I look from that perspective a lot. Okay. Um, the quality of the individual. Mm-hmm.
0: Is there anything that you could share with our entrepreneurs about exits? Is there anything you wish you would have done differently, or you wish you would have known? And how would they know when is the right time to exit a business?
1: That's a really tough one. That's a learning process for me as well. Um, Exiting, it's a lot of times it's opportunistic. Mm-hmm. What's in front of you? I advise. Um, young entrepreneurs today. Always run towards something. Mm-hmm. Don't run away from yeah. something.
0: Yeah. Excellent advice. Let's talk about our time together on the National Women's Business Council. Can you talk a little bit about some of the things that uh, the council was able to get done uh, and where you continue to see obstacles around getting policy implemented specifically for small business? The mission is to create policies and advise White
1: House and Congress on best economic policies for women business ownership. Uh, We've done the most amount of research in terms of policy. We have uh, enhanced uh, and put forward the uh, women's procurement. We have done studies on uh, STEM and the percentage of people in STEM becoming entrepreneurs, uh, women entrepreneurs in uh, veteran space, Latina space, in millennial space, and rural. Mm -hmm. Those were very interesting pieces uh, that I have found personally, and there were many more. And some of them have been turning into policy recommendations. Others are still a work in progress.
0: Yes. So let's get to our lightning round. Right. Better as my speed dating round here. (laughs) So I'm going to ask you a series of questions, all personal questions, and you just tell me the first thing that comes to your mind. Are you ready? Yes. Okay. Favorite thing about DC? Openness. Favorite book or magazine? Too many to name. Okay. City or the countryside? City. Winter or summer? Summer. East Coast or West Coast? Both. Your next business venture that you're most excited about? Well, I'm working on a fintech
1: product and an AI tool for semiconductor industry. So.
0: Wow. Okay. Coffee or tea? Both. Text or talking? Texting. Last thing you downloaded. An app called Medium. Favorite vacation destination.
1: The place I haven't been.
0: Oh, okay. That's a good one. If you had a talk show, who would you want to be your first guest? Martha Stewart. That would be an interesting I had the privilege of uh, taking Martha public back in 98, Uh, 99, excuse me, 99, October of 99. Uh, What's one word that you'd like to use to describe your legacy?
1: Resilience. Mm Mm-hmm.
0: Rose, thank you so much for being with us. This has been an amazing conversation. What an honor to be here. Thank you. You're most welcome. I'm Carla Harris, and we'll be back soon with another conversation about access and opportunity.